Hi, and welcome back to Miss Macintosh, my darling, commentary for the book. Um, we, I think the, we're on chapter 30, we only have 19 chapters left, so, and I think the chapters coming up are pretty short, um, so I think we might be covering three chapters today, I'm not sure, two or three, but then even, usually it's like three short ones and a long one, three short ones and a long one, um, but it looks like this next round seems pretty short like it's more like the, we've got five chapters next five chapters are kind of short um hello will you please come use the hummingbird feeder there you go yeah it's almost done i'm not gonna fill it back up again it's almost time for you to leave you're so cute um so i looked up a couple of things so the one i was thinking the, the one line um it's just a a a note from chapter 29 we're gonna go on to 30 31 32 I believe but from chapter 39 29 sorry from chapter 29 I did go back and look up a couple of things and uh, the theory of color and I did put a link to it in the references and then I went back and looked up the where he was talking about um, where does the soul go when you sleep and I thought that seems like a theological question that would have been asked so I went back and did some research and sure enough it is um, and there's a difference be depending on what religion and in Christianity. So I end up finding Christian mortality and eternal oblivion. And so those are some of the beliefs that Christian theology has, um, which differs from Judaism and Islam. Judaism and Islam are a little more uh, uh, together on their thinking up to a certain point. Um, um, so, which I thought was interesting. Uh, Judaism and Islam believe that every time you sleep, uh, whenever you sleep, your soul leaves your body, joins back with the Creator, the Source, or Allah, and it is rejuvenated. And so that way, when you wake up, in in Judaism, you wake up and you are spiritually renewed. In Islam, your soul is being judged on a daily basis, or on a whatever a sleep basis, so that if you wake up, then Allah has therefore judged judged you to be all right, and you can wake up. And if you don't wake up or you die in your sleep, then your soul has been found lacking and Allah decided not to let you wake up. So they diverged there, but that was really interesting. I had no idea. And then uh, Christian oblivion and eternal mortality, uh, oh, sorry, Christian mortality and eternal oblivion. Uh, I, I don't know which one Mr. Spitzer was talking about. I didn't go that far, but... Um, I did put the references in there, and that one, it's a little bit of a longer explanation I didn't wanna, don't want to get into right now. Uh, I'm not going to revisit it again, so I did uh, update the uh, the ebook. so have fun <laughs> trying to wrap your head around that stuff. Okay, chapter 30, character list, Catherine Cartwheel, Vera Cartwheel. Remember, Vera Cartwheel's a narrator. That's why I add, that's why I ended up adding her in these chapters, even though she's not mentioned or she's not specifically there per se she sometimes adds her thoughts uh when when she t when Catherine is talked about i put Catherine's name in there but it a lot of it is vera saying my mother um but yeah i do add vera cartwheel as part of the character list um mr spitzer i think i'm gonna have to um, i i don't know whether i'll have to split that up into joaquin and perone or not uh eustace cousin hannah and Catherine's husband so cousin Hannah is going to 
be introduced and she has a, a pretty good uh, storyline with Mr. Spitzer. Synopsis, Catherine and Mr. Spitzer spend time together every evening in her bedroom. Eustace is Catherine's favorite imaginary person or thing. Cousin Hannah is introduced as a great suffragette who has traveled all over the world, sometimes dressed as a man in order to free women. Catherine's husband disappeared while climbing a mountain. Paragraph one, Catherine and Mr. Spitzer spend their time talking about and two people who are not there. For hours as if they were real, as if the dead should live, walk about, clap their hands, sing and shout and whistle. Real people were the only unreal people to Catherine. Mr. Spitzer appeared to indulge Catherine often through his silence. Catherine often talked to Eustace. The name Eustace means fruitful, fecund, abundant, and grain. Eustace could take on many forms. He was limitless. Sometimes Catherine confused Eustace with, uh, for other people. Arthur Wesley, first Duke of Wellington, was a famous military leader and political figure in 19th century England. A Venetian gentleman's murderous valet may refer to Lord William Russell, who was a British aristocrat and murdered by his valet, Francois Benjamin Colosser. Catherine would suddenly cry out for Eustace while Mr. Spitzer was there. Eustace may be St. Eustace, since she mentions golden antlered stags. St. Eustace converted to Christianity while out hunting after seeing a cross between the deer's antlers and hearing the voice of God. So this is another indication that, that Catherine symbolizes something like that. Two, Catherine considered Mr. Spitzer an unreliable and tentative and solitary companion. This great abstraction always yawning in her face like the idea of the uncreated creation. So she would ask family relations, close or distant, or different people to play games with her. All of them are dead. One of the guests she thought of inviting, cousin Hannah, a soul of vast duplicity, who had gone to join her fathers long ago and thus would make the ideal partner for a lively game of cards. Catherine always have the winning hand of cards. Catherine talks about needing only one more partner for cards if Mr. Spitzer and cousin Hannah joined. Catherine could not be two partners, but Cousin Hannah could be herself and a gentleman who had apparently never worn the white plume of cowardice. And my mail's coming. No, no it's not. Cousin Hannah, Catherine claimed, had rescued many fair and dark ladies, and perhaps she might rescue my mother from the opium dreams of her dead loves. Cousin Hannah's entire history, it seemed now, had been a history of skirts. Three, her full name is Cousin Hannah Fremont Snowden, the jolly old soul. Or if she had not been jolly, then surely she would be so now, released from her long endeavors in this mortal life. Catherine hints that Cousin Hannah did not believe in an afterlife. She had probably felt to be the only life, and yet had managed to scorn as something intolerably beneath her dignity, just as she had scorned personal immortality or its vague counterpart. Cousin Hannah had never cared for the Spitzer boys, not even when they were promising and dreamy-eyed young men with all of life seemingly before them had staunchly predicted that they would come to no good end, that they were destined for an early grave and utter oblivion, for they were really identical, not nearly so different as they had supposed. She describes them both as profligates or wildly exaggerant or utterly extravagant or utterly and shamelessly immoral or dissipated. Four, Cousin Hannah is described as a know-it-all. Her views of life had been based on a knowledge no one else had enjoyed, so that always, no matter what had happened, it would seem as if she had already known. Several examples are given of her predicting international events. The murder of the Russian Tsar and royal family could refer to the... Let me change that. May. Refer to the execution of the Romanov family. The murder of the Archduke of Sarajevo may refer to the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which started World War I. Other kings and rulers are listed that Cousin Hannah knew about their deaths before they occurred. 
However, all these events occurred in general history. In Catherine's jumbled mind, she may not realize that these are just historical events and Cousin Hannah used this to dazzle my poor mother in her dark tower. Cousin Hannah was well-traveled and had known the politics of all those nations where the ladies wear trousers and the gentlemen wear skirts, and she had gone by camel into places where no woman had ever gone before. She had also been appraised of those secrets of bedrooms throughout this world. It was thought she could hear private conversations between men and women anywhere in the world, and also the names of horses throughout the nocturnal world. Five, Cousin Hannah had never stayed for long in one place and had had no time for long visits or for the exploration of any single character. Catherine had tried to con contact her by telephone, but her house was always empty, so had sent messages, messengers, arising out of her opium dreams. Long after Cousin Hannah was dead and her house torn down, I know, well, about another week and then I'm going to take everything down. Um, long after Cousin Hannah was dead and her house torn down, Catherine would still call her on the telephone. She was not worried that she didn't answer because Cousin Hannah had always rushed from country to country. She had seldom been to visit Catherine before she died. She always came to Catherine's house unannounced. Death seemed scarcely a greater absence than life had been. It was difficult to know on what date of the calendar her death should be marked. And how should my mother know? Cousin Hannah was never known to leave a forwarding address. Six, Cousin Hannah is described as having compensated for her superficial views by a marvelous certainty that was set above the peaks of time by a ruthless sangfroid cutting through all obstacles. Sangfroid is a composure or coolness shown in danger or under trying circumstances. She was described as being excellent in all manner of things and activities. A great archer in Persia could refer to, may refer, A great archer in Persia may refer to Arash, who is a famous archer of Iranian mythology. A great dueler in France could refer to Julie de Albignet. An expert with sword and gun in Romania could refer to Stephen the Great. There are more famous people that Marguerite Young could be may be referring to. But no specific information could be found. Um, also, I think uh, the impression that I got when reading Miss McIntosh, my darling, sorry, B, I don't want you, um, um, was that I feel like, to me, I felt like I was getting a classical education <laughs> reading through this with all the Greek mythology and all the references in history and and all of these historical facts yeah I mean it felt like a an education that was being used um, uh, for her world um, which was really interesting it was really cool as, as I didn't realize it the first time I read when I read through I realized it when I started looking stuff up because so I feel that Young was making references, like the th couple of things that I could find reference references for when she was, she makes very general references to things in history that could be things that, that may refer to things that actually happen in history. So I feel at that time that history was closer to, I, I get the feeling that Young thought that this was common knowledge, like this was a classical education and if you were educated you would get these references like she didn't have to say much uh leave left a couple of clues and you would get it because 
of that history being more recent than now in 2022 and we're, we're completely removed from it. I had no idea. I had to just type in the keywords and see if something popped up on Google. And that's what happened and that's why I say it may refer to this. Whenever I do that, that's exactly what I did. It seemed like, I don't know when I had the epiphany, but I was looking at something and I thought, that's too specific. That's got to mean something. And I ended up just typing that phrase into Google and then having, sure enough, this character or this book show up. And I was like, oh, okay, it, she might have been referring to this. And I also get the feeling it kind of works because she refers to a lot of things in the 1800s, the later 1800s, and definitely up into 1930. Like, that's, that's all there. Not really World War II. I didn't find anything. I don't remember uh, finding anything around World War II, even though that was very fresh on everybody's mind when she started uh, writing the book. Um, but yeah, the, definitely the periods from like 1850s to 1930s, 1940s, all of that is definitely in there. Um, and she grew up during the 1950s. So, um, so oh, there are some references in the 1950s, I think. Popular songs, no, even that's 1930s. But yeah, so I have a feeling I, when I can't find stuff, um, I think there might be even more. I mean, what I could find, I think there might be even more there with the clues that she left. But the history has moved on and it's and, and not easily. I cannot find it. Uh, it cannot be found easily. Maybe somebody else might be able to, to have an idea of what she was taught, what she was referring to. And if it even matters, I understand. She's just creating this entire world, this whole um it is. It's world building. She's creating this whole world along with, uh, in this book. Cousin Hannah is supposed to also have ridden in hot air balloons and could hear the most subtle of sounds. Because of the loss of a skirt, it was known now her entire life had been perhaps an act of sorrow and redemption. That's huge foreshadowing for what will happen later on in her and Cousin Hannah's story arc. Seven, Cousin Hannah is described as not persuaded by dreams and visions. She had compensated for her lack of patience by her impatience, which was so fine that it was like a virtue, just as if she had already seen into all the dark abysses of human nature. She had had no use for further experience or knowledge. It would seem cutting through great cables of iron as if they were silken threads, even those delicate threads binding us to reality. Eight, Catherine, Han Catherine admired Cousin Hannah and looked upon Cousin Hannah as if she were an emancipated extension of herself. Cousin Hannah had a brilliant mind, seeing all hazards before they had occurred, and choosing the lesser dangers, though they were also very great. Cousin Hannah lived by her inscrutable choices as if there had been no alternative. She was strong, and it seemed the obstacles moved out of her way when she encountered them. Catherine felt Cousin Hannah had survived so long as she had traveled. Cousin Hannah was always traveling on distant roads, and where the road ended, she would go on. She thought it was more dangerous to cross streets than travel. Renault is a French automobile manufacturer. Even though Catherine didn't have the energy for such adventures, Cousin Hannah's journeys had utterly fascinated her. 9. Cousin Hannah knows all the great mountain ranges, with intimacy as someone else might know the complexities of Boston society or the genealogies of Beacon Hill. Beacon Hill is one of Boston, Massachusetts' most picturesque areas. Seeing Cousin Hannah, Catherine would ask of one who was not likely to respond, Have you seen my husband? Catherine's husband had disappeared while climbing between two peaks. 10. Catherine wanted to send out a search party, rescue mission, or Cousin Hannah to look for her husband in the Alps. 
Hannibal was a general and statesman of Carthage in what is now Tunisia. Child Roland is a character in a poem by Robert Browning. The character of Roland in the poem makes a journey to the Dark Tower. Much like the journey of Pilgrim's Progress in the Divine Comedy, the name Child Roland comes from the Shakespeare play King Lear, Act 3, Scene 4, lines 195-197. Catherine wanted to look for her husband everywhere, even look for him in all those hidden inns where he might be sleeping with the innkeeper's snow-breasted daughter or beautiful bride. Then Catherine would refuse to acknowledge that her dead husband never would return. She thought he might be sailing or philandering or racing dogs because both knew the faithlessness, the treachery of man. 11. Cousin Hannah was always able to avoid danger during her travels. Catherine thought there were hired assassins waiting to kill her, doubtless to this day. She never imagined that Cousin Hannah was dead and buried with her ancestors in a gray New England churchyard. Catherine imagined her with a jeweled sword and a great star sapphire that Mr. Spitzer had pinned upon her old gray army coat, which had seen so many campaigns in Indian China, so many foreign and domestic wars for the emancipation of women. 12. Cousin Hannah is described as a gaunt maiden and a daughter of the codfish aristocracy. She was able to disguise herself as many people in order to travel. A Lazar is a person afflicted with a repulsive disease like leprosy. Mazin is the person who proclaims the call to the daily prayer in Islam. She had traveled far and wide in Arabia and Persia. Persepolis was the ceremonial capital of the Achaemenid Empire. Catherine asked if Cousin Hannah had seen Darius the Great and Cousin Hannah said no. Darius the Great was the third Persian king of kings of the uh, Achaemenid Empire. Ishfahan is a city in central Iran. Shiraz is in the southwest of Iran. Moab is a city in eastern Utah known for its red rock formations. The Dead Sea is a salt lake bordering Jordan, Israel, and the West Bank. Arabia Deserta is the title of a travel book by Charles Montague Doughty, an admiral and admired by T.E. Lawrence, a.k.a. Lawrence of Arabia. I forgot to list that. That's another book. Okay. Babylon was the ancient capital city of the Babylonian Empire. Nineveh was an ancient Assyrian city of Upper Mesopotamia. Crete is the largest island in Greece. Cousin Hannah rode a white horse named El Barak, after the horse which Muhammad the Prophet had tethered the Wailing Wall for a moment before they had taken the invisible road which ascended into heaven. Barak is a creature in Islamic tradition that provides transport for certain prophets. All the adults in Vera's life recite facts. Miss McIntosh asks questions about current and general knowledge facts. Mr. Spitzer has extensive knowledge about his hobbies like butterflies. Catherine has extensive knowledge about geography and history. She wanted to learn math, but her father wouldn't teach her. Cousin Hannah is supposed to have traveled and knew about different cultures and places revolving around women's suffrage. Each character has their flaws. Miss McIntosh is wearing a physical disguise. Mr. Spitzer is broken with grief over the loss of his brother and which brother he is living as now. Catherine is retired to bed in opium to escape reality. Cousin Hannah we have not learned about yet, but she also has one. All of this suggests that young thought knowledge of the world and spiritual matters does not help a person maneuver their way through life. This may be a critique of school learning or rote memorization or the three R's. The three R's are three basic skills taught in schools, reading, writing, and arithmetic, especially so back in her time. The phrase appears to have been coined at the beginning of the 19th century. The skills themselves are alluded to in St. Augustine's Confessions and Young Admired St. Augustine, where students learn to read and write and do arithmetic. So it's called, and Young made an, oh, and that just reminds me of another comment that Young made in an interview that, um, about school. And it, and it kind of seems like Vera's point, where you're supposed to, like you're in school to memorize all these facts, but these facts don't help you get through life. It's not the facts that help you get through life. At least that seems to be Young's opinion. 
13. Cousin Hannah had never departed from this world, and her adventures were recorded in the old Boston newspapers by some old dreaming newspaper reporter who had never left his desk. And other adventures were never recorded as she had gone to places where no newspaper reporter had ever gone. Cousin Hannah on a white camel had joined a caravan of lonely rifts on their way to market when they were attacked by Spanish soldiers equipped with modern American firearms. And Cousin Hannah had driven them back, forgetting that she was a stockholder of American firearms, old blunderbusses of the Civil War which no one manufactured now, old cannonballs which had already exploded. Rifts are, mem are members of a number of Berber tribes around Arif. Ay, what be? Sheesh. She had forgotten her suffrage mission and attacked them because her proud heart could not endure injustice of any kind in this world or that one should triumph over another. Catherine believed Cousin Hannah must have killed many men that day. Since Cousin Hannah was dressed as an Arab, the Spaniards would have been surprised to learn they were attacked by a woman. And even the Arabs thought she was a phantom appearing out of the sand and had praised Allah when she was gone. These exploits are being retold by Catherine. It could be they are exaggerated or entirely made up since, though Cousin Hannah, of course, was inclined to minimize such adventures or not to speak of them at all. Fourteen Cousin Hannah on her adventures attributed no importance to such distant encounters, treating them as if they were less than something occurring in my mother's opium dreams, which doubtless she did not wish to encourage, as she had come to overthrow the dream. Cousin Hannah was dedicated to the overthrow of the dream and of the dreamer in all countries. And perhaps if she had succeeded in her own country, my mother thought then as now, would never have gone to those far places where her failures would not necessarily be known. Fifteen, through great perils, Cousin Hannah had always survived because those ships which she had not taken were always those ships which had disappeared, leaving no survivors to tell that they were gone. Cousin Hannah had made more than 40 trips to Europe in 40 years, and the number 40 comes up again uh, regarding Hannah's great secret. Two ports which were never reached by any other ship or star, yet never taken in two ships simultaneously as my mother, sailing in one ship for the living, one for the dead, so that no more, matter what happened, she would always reach port. Doubtless it was in the ship for the dead that she had enjoyed many more voyages than she had taken, sailing in the six months' darkness. Sixteen, while Catherine was on that ship for the dead, she would ask the man on the lonely star watch questions reflecting life. Where are we going? What is out there? Who is doing the creating? Okay, you really need to move on, B. I am not a flower. All right. Arcturus is the brightest star in the constellation of Boots, Andromeda, Andromeda is the daughter of King Cepheus and Queen Cassiopeia in Greek mythology. Hades is the... H Hades? Hades? It's not Hades like in the underworld. Hiatus? Hiatus is the nearest open star cluster. Argosy is a large merchant ship. Orion is a prominent constellation located on the celestial equator. And... How are we doing? Now we might only get through with two chapters. I don't remember how, well, let me check to make sure we can get through. Yeah. Okay, we're going to get through two chapters. I doubt, I doubt the other one will be short enough. Okay, chapter 31. Character list, Catherine Cartwheel, Cousin Hannah, and Mr. Spitzer. Synopsis, Catherine and Mr. Spitzer talk about their complicated relationship with Cousin Hannah. Cousin Hannah has a great secret that they cannot talk about directly. The mirrors in her house are covered in black chiffon and mourning for someone or something. Cousin Hannah never liked the Spitzer brothers and ignored them both. Paragraph 1. While sitting with Catherine, Mr. Spitzer would sometimes reply, as long as the comments were not of reality, because he, being profoundly ever and increasingly convinced that reality would kill her as it had killed her canary, which he thought was flying over the waves. This story 
earlier in the book ended with Catherine knowing that the canary had escaped and died. So she had this canary, if you remember, she had this canary and they kept, it was the immortal canary because they kept replacing it. When it died, they would sneak in a room and replace it with a live one. But one time there was a great storm that went through Catherine's room and the, and the um, windows blew open and Catherine saw the, the canary fly away. So she knew, so then she was onto it, but um, uh, that's what they're alluding to. Uh, there. Um, of course, if Catherine was already dead yet lived, she had proved that there was life after death, that she had escaped that which was not escaped by stars or by Mr. Spitzer. Mr. Spitzer admitted he had secretly liked cousin Hannah, who had openly disapproved of all those subtleties which were outside their her realm. Catherine and Mr. Spitzer disagreed about many things, but had been bound by their mutual admiration not only of Perone, who had gambled his life away, but of this old cousin who was a type of adventurer making their own adventures seem forever unfulfilled. Indeed, she was the acme of forlorn romance. I'm going to change that, make it a little more clear, I think. The story of the canary. canary. Okay, there we go. Two, Mr. Spitzer and Catherine seemed to hear the loud detonations of Cousin Hannah's rage many years after. Three, the house shook with the memory of that wrath which would never spend itself. For unlike my mother, Cousin Hannah, though keeping her own mysteries in death as in life, had always believed in being direct. Four, Cousin Hannah had wanted to rescue Catherine and free her from opium dreams of the dead love. It was a losing battle with shadows, even though Cousin Hannah had won great battles, not recorded in the long history of suffrage campaigns. This one for Catherine was lost. Mecca is Islam's holiest city in Saudi Arabia. Medina is the second holiest city in Islam. Fez is an important city in Morocco. Cousin Hannah was a great traveler in this life as perhaps in death. She had led a nomadic existence. Cousin Hannah had brought my mother a, bought, brought my mother a mirror from a tomb saying that it should reveal the transience of human life. Five, Cousin Hannah had never married and her life had been shadowed with grief which was mentioned whisperingly with hesitation even now by my mother and Mr. Spitzer. It was considered a great secret that they would only skirt around it endlessly, remembering all else before they remembered the secret heart of the dead captain, the secret begetting the secret through eternity. Six, Cousin Hannah would never have been capable of such evasiveness. She had taken on bearded human lions, great sheiks, African kings, and turbaned Turks. Seven, Cousin Hannah claimed Catherine was not in love with any man but with a fleeting shadow, and it was the shadow against whom Cousin Hannah, girding her loins with suffrage, had battled with. Cousin Hannah did not understand that death was necessary to my mother's love, for what was man but a shadow, my mother had asked, then is now a shadow driven to and fro by the wind, and when had she ever seen a man on earth? Eight, Cousin Hannah had spent all her life discouraging my mother's love of the dead man. Perone had so greatly admired the captain of a lost campaign, for he had always figured that she would lose the last battle as she had lost the first. When he died, Cousin Hannah did not say anything or send anything at his funeral. After Perone's death, Cousin Hannah also ignored Joachim as if it were he who had died, even though he was her lawyer to whom she had certainly entrusted many legal and financial affairs. Mr. Spitzer would be the one to pay his last respects to that great captain, he who would write his elegy for her, even though she had never recognized him again. Nine, Cousin Hannah had never acknowledged the Spitzer twins or shown any sign that according to Mr. Spitzer, each one who lives is shrunken by another's death, even be it the death of a rival. That she was withered by just that loss of memory and recognition which had always, which had been hers, oh, sorry. 
memory and recognition which had been hers when Perone had greeted her. Perone had always asked how she was doing in the suffrage movement. Cousin Hannah's furies had not diminished, but had increased. 10. Cousin Hannah had paid Mr. Spitzer but one great compliment, one attention, the fact that she had ignored him through all the active years of her life, although he had continued to make his punctual calls, always to her empty house, coming with important documents for her to sign. Mr. Spitzer had timed his steps not as a matter of chance, but of elegant strategy, the most careful design, a counter-move to her ignoring him. Her house was described as being obviously vacant because she was traveling. By all of these signs and testimonials, it was evident that she was not home. Cousin Hannah traveled in the mountains with St. Bernard. 11. That is when Mr. Spitzer visited her house, when he knew she was far out on the high seas, drifting in an open boat upon the great waves of the storm, without captain or sail or compass. She never, he never had to breathe a prayer for her, because he knew she would always arrive safely and that he would surely see her again in this life. Mr. Spitzer always made sure she was away before knocking at her door with his ivory-headed cane. He only visited her when he believed that she was absent. 12. Even though the house seemed abandoned and Cousin Hannah was not home, Mr. Spitzer felt as if he was being observed by a pair of bright, dark eyes staring at him, like in those mysterious oriental cities where the secret women look out, where the women can see the men, but the men cannot always see the women, a fact which, it would always seem to him, acted greatly to a man's disadvantage. This way, Mr. Spitzer may never see a strange woman, or if his wife wore a veil, he might believe she was beautiful long after her beauty had ceased. Thus to him explained why in the oriental countries there was polygamy, for a man could not be sure what manner of woman he loved. I forgot to add here, but actually, uh, I think I might add a section on here about the veil. And teacles, teacles, teckles. Um, so I think I'm going to add a thing here about veiling. Um, so in Islam, women veil in different ways, but it's only outside the home. While they're inside the home and with male relatives, they, they do not have to veil. So there's not that. Um, Judaism, there's a, a, a tikkul, tikkul, I think. Um, and that is just a married woman, to show respect for her husband, will wear a headscarf covering her hair. Um, and so I think I'll add a note about that, about veiling in general. And there's all different kinds of veiling or head covering. Um, I know in, Af in African cultures, there's head coverings there and they're in styles. Um, so head coverings for women, it has a very long history. So I think I'm going to look up some of that and put that in here since uh, to kind of balance out what Mr. Spitzer's thinking. That was 31.12. Okay, 13. Sometimes Mr. Spitzer would knock again, even though he was afraid Cousin Hannah might open the door. Cousin Hannah was not considered beautiful, and it was merely a routine call when he would perhaps have passed through that neighborhood in any case. If no one was home, that was fine, but he thought it would seem ridiculous by knocking upon the door of a house which contained an unanswering occupant. He had the feeling that Cousin Hannah had probably never left home and was watching him now, that she had been secreted all along in this great house with its many chambers and had merely given out to reporters the news that she had gone to a distant country. <laughs> so you can imagine... Uh, just being a recluse, but saying that you traveled and reporting to reporters that you did all this stuff. So that could, ha could have happened. Mr. Spitzer tried to knock on the window to surprise her, but instead scared himself because he thought he heard spectral footsteps or a bird's wing. The mirrors were draped in veils of black chiffon in memory of some earlier death he had forgotten. When asked whose, she never had replied. And there isn't, there's no name for this 
And, and that's going to be a, a thing we can debate about what in the world Cousin Ham is talking about. Ah, 14. When Mr. Spitzer put his ear to the door, he thought he heard the whinnying of a distant horse, yet he could not help being very much annoyed by this persistent oblivion to him, this failure to arouse her. He would be upset even though he was relieved Cousin Hannah was not there. And he was also disappointed, most especially, especially as he had brought these exceptionally important papers, which he disregarded as if they were worthless, as perhaps he must admit now they were. For what were earthly riches, great castles and lonely towers, even great railroads, railroads in the face of the emptiness of life. When Mr. Spitzer stared through the keyhole, he would be overwhelmed by the increasing certainty that there was another great rounded eye staring at him with equal astonishment. He would call out and bang against the door, but he had simply misplaced the phenomena. 15. Mr. Spitzer could have read some of the old newspapers which had collected on the porch, but he didn't feel they were accurate and that reporters didn't seem to know more than he did and often made mistakes about what journey she'd taken or not taken and he attributed this error to the low state of his own consciousness like fire burning underwater, the tuper of his mind which emitted so many things but saw much which others did not see. A lunar rainbow or moonbow is a rainbow produced by moonlight rather than direct sunlight. 16. Mr. Spitzer would always leave his calling card, the butterfly, which was his sign of resurrection and eternal life, so that she could never accuse him of having ignored her, so that she would know that he had come during her absence, a period sometimes so long that it had seemed an absence from this world. Sometimes he was windily shaken by the thought that it might be his own absence. He was this empty cocoon. He also left papers that he had little hope Cousin Hannah would sign. Even so, every now and then the papers were signed and returned. The old bank clerk verified it was her signature, but Mr. Spitzer wasn't sure because the old bank clerk had sometimes mistaken Mr. Spitzer's signature, the microscopic handwriting which required a magnifying glass. Seventeen, even after Cousin Hannah died, Mr. Spitzer stopped by her house and knocked on the door, often dropping his calling card through the slot, forgetting that he had buried her who had never buried him, perhaps imagining that she continued in this life as he continued. 18. Mr. Spitzer knew Cousin Hannah was dead and had been the mo only mourner for the simple reason that most people thought she had died years before she had died. She had outlived her fame by several years, there seeming nothing sadder to Mr. Spitzer than the insubstantiality of human praise. Mr. Spitzer would never have that problem, for he had no name, no fame to outlive, just as he had found out that there would be no one to give a passing thought to him. Mr. Spitzer claims to have also buried her with her St. Bernard and the Red Cross bottle. 19. Mr. Spitzer said her estate was not that large, and he had intended to erect that great tomb of which the design still remained only in his amorphous mind, for he was still composing the epitaph about which he could not decide, though he had composed at the time her elegy. His timid music could be played only when there was a great storm all but blotting it out. He had thought of so many desolate possibilities in memory of her he could not settle on one, for he was so evasive forever and forever turning in his mind what the words should be. For what instruction should he give to the great stone cutter in memory of one who had a stony face forever clouded? Oh, great to the great stone cutter. Oh, great stone cutter might be another reference to God. I'll have to see if I included that one. 20. Mr. Spitzer had thought of many epitaphs, but had crossed them out. Let me see. Let me put a note to add. Great stone cutter. Um, 20. Mr. Spitzer had thought of many epitaphs, but had crossed them out. Here lies the greatest captain who fought against all nations and rescued many ladies from their dark towers and cruel lords, but could not rescue herself. 
Here lies one who searched all her life for her dead love, a body covered by the snow. Here lies one who is pitiful. Here lies one who shared our common lot of mortal, fra mortal frailty and died of her life. She died at home. She perished in a domestic war. Death snatched away her beautiful bride. Here lies the dead love of the world. 21. Mr. Spitzer's grief was so large that he feared that whenever one died, he would mourn for two, perhaps through sheer generosity. Perhaps he should mourn for one who had died, one who was immortal and could not die. Perhaps he should mourn for one who could not be born, one who had bypassed this world. Mr. Spitzer never decided on the inscription of his brother's tombstone or, tombstone or even the name, whether it was his brother or J.S., settling on the cognomen Spitzer in that case, but never deciding which brother it was. And perhaps he never would decide, doubtless because of his great reluctance to face the ultimate truth. Cognomen is an extra-personal name given to an ancient Roman citizen, functioning like a nickname and typically passed down from father to son. In the end, he had chosen a simple headstone for cousin Hannah with her name. He wasn't even sure about her name because she might have changed it. He didn't put her birth date or death date because he thought she might be sensitive about revealing her age. In this way, he did not have to acknowledge that she would not return as my mother dreamed. 22. Mr. Spitzer didn't bother to look up her birthday because cousin Hannah had utterly negated him while he was still alive would never have shown such compassion as he had acquired since his brother's death. Plus, he found that records were not necessarily accurate or complete because the old clerk of the death rolls had made an inordinately great mistake that he had listed Mr. Spitzer's name among the dead. Yet he lived, though he had been unable to convince many a desk clerk. Even insurance agents had argued with him that he was dead, whereas it was certainly to their advantage to prove that a man lived. 23. Mr. Spitzer smiled with ineffable sorrow to think that she had ignored him who had outlived her, that he had continued to in much the same routine long after it would seem that her great adventure had ceased. Cousin Hannah thought Catherine wasted her precious time with the Spitzer brothers, both unreal, no matter which one had died, or if both had died when one had died. For Joachim, though he pretended to be so true, was weak as water, deceitful and wavering and blown about like foam, and Perone was equally deceitful, even though, as it had seemed, he had never pretended to be true and had not pledged eternal love or even one shining moment for its dead image repeated in time. This made the, twin two, this made the two brothers more alike than different. There was no great choice between them, for a choice should imply a difference in the ultimate results. It was Hobson's choice. It was a choice between death and death, not death and life, not death and love. Hobson's choice is a free choice in which only one thing is actually offered and is used to mean an illusion of choice. Cousin Hannah predicted that both brothers would reject Catherine. Both were equally insecure, as unsubstantial as flame and water. The flame evaporates the water. The water extinguishes the flame. Now, there's a lot of good quotes in here. The last paragraph. Yeah, then we'll, done. we'll be done. Cousin Hannah had scoffed at my mother's imaginary quests, her search for the external man. Oh, that's a big butterfly. Catherine imagined Cousin Hannah shouting, but perhaps as usual she had been dreaming of that which was not, just as she had believed. Cousin Hannah's enemy was external man, in the same way another lady would say a vow which should unite her to the object of her true love, or should he be absent from this world, should serve as a barrier between herself and any other love which wore a human face. Cousin Hannah had also objected to phantoms of the air, those whom my mother believed had always eluded her, as if by artifice eluding artifice. For they had not been physically presences, these old kings who already, to the sound of muffled drums, had passed away. All right, I got a couple notes that I want to look up here. Oh, spiderweb, goodness gracious. My porch is covered in stuff. 
today. Alright, um, 32. I thought 32 was still a relatively short chapter, yeah. And then 33 is a short chapter. And 34 is a shortest chapter. Okay. Well, that's 35. We're almost done. Yeah, I think I really will finish in September. Uh, 35 is not that is short. Thirty six is short. Thirty seven is short. Oops. Thirty eight is short. And thirty nine. Well, we are going to finish up here. I may finish by the end of uh, as I can cover at least two chapters a day. So yeah, I should finish. We're planning to go to the fair, so there is some time and activities that we're going to do. But, yeah, it looks like um, I will be able to finish this up uh, f 1st of September at the latest. Alright, and then we will start on, um, then we'll, we'll roll, I, I doubt I will take much of a break. And we will roll right into... Um, chapter 40 because I'm on I'm on chapter 73 so I will be able to which will be kind of nice that I'll be able to go back through and kind of be correcting it before I finish it for this so the second volume but I will uh, so the first September I should finish here I will update the volume one uh, I will finish updating volume one, one of To All My Darlings, and then uh, we will, I have, a couple, I have a couple things we're doing, we have some stuff we're doing in September, but generally I'll still, I'll, I might take a short break and then roll into chapter 40, start volume two, and then, yeah, but the end of uh, the book is going pretty slow. So we'll start with volume. Uh, we'll start with, start with chapter forty, volume two. To all my darlings, we'll once that's done, um, which that should be finished by December. That, that, that everything should be well. That's good. Everything should be finished by December, so that one should be, be able to be published, and then uh, I'll get to work on volume three, which is all the um, not doing an index so much as words that are. I have picked out words that, have, that are repeated. Like I said, trying to catalog everything that's mentioned in the book is uh, is starting is getting more and more overwhelming. Like the more I think I'll, I'll the more I find the the more I think I found the more there is to find. And I'm not sure how I want to handle it. I know I do want to handle the books and the poems for sure. I'm not sure about the nursery rhymes. I'm not sure about the songs. Uh, stars, butterflies, I've already done that in uh, in the commentary. So I'm not going to do that. But the books require, I think, a little more, and even in the poems, require a little more in-depth than I can do in the commentary. So for sure, books and poems. 
for sure themes, relationships. St. Augustine's teachings are going to mean there. William James, because she was a big fan of him, um, uh, and, and named those two specifically as influences to her writing. Um, um, symbolism, and it's general symbolism, because uh, there's just a lot in the book, and, and so I've just pulled out general symbolism. Sometimes I've pulled out uh, pertinent phrases from the book that go along with it, so you can kind of build up an idea um, of what it all may mean. And let's see, I'm over 100 pages already with that. Um, relationships between the different characters, which I've been mentioning as we go along in the commentary, but I'll try and get into it a little bit more, uh, or try and at least pull it all together in one place. And what else? What else is in there? Uh, gender. Definitely gender will have its own section. Um, I can't remember. What else is in there? There's more. Anyways, I'm, I've already got over 100 pages in, so I'm sure... It will be about as long. Most of these have all been about, they're about 300 pages. I'm afraid that the second volume will be slightly longer than the first volume, but I had to cut it off. I really wanted to make it one volume, um, but uh, I'm doing this on Google Docs and um, uh, uh, it only goes so far. <laughs> I think I was trying to get up to like 600 pages. I was up to 600 pages. This was this, and this is going to be 600 pages. Um, so it's half the size of, of Ms. McIntosh's, Ms. McIntosh, my darling, uh, actual novel. Um, but it warrants it. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's there. It's not as if I was adding stuff. The stuff was already there. So uh, it got too big and Google Docs said, there's, the, there's actually a max that we allow you to have <laughs> on Google Docs and 500 pages is it so I thought okay we'll split it into 300 and some pages so so if I went over I, knowing that I would go back through volume one so volume one is over 300 pages volume two I'm afraid is going to be closer to 400 pages but maybe not it might still be around it's gonna be over 300 but not but it's already over 300 but as I go back through I might do some more editing so it might cut that down a little bit and the third volume I have no idea I'm already at 150 pages I think by the time I get done adding everything, um, it's probably going to be close to 300 pages as well. So, all right, there you go. Um, in, in September, so this is going to work out. Volume one, I'll finish uh, editing because we're going to finish this up pretty soon. So once I do that, the changes, I'll upload the changes. That will be reissued. Um, in September, I should be able to offer it free again on uh, Kindle. So I will do that, and I will also put together the paperback and probably a hardback. And the hardback's just probably for me as my collector's edition. But, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so that, that, that timeline seems to be working. So September uh, to All My Darlings Volume 1 will be redone and out there. And we will start in on Volume 2 in September, uh, if not the 1st of October. And then volume two should be done by at least January, around January, December, January. I probably will wait until January to, to get it all done and out there because then I can offer that one free after I have three or four months. I have three, no, I have four months. No, three months. I have three months, 90 days. So by January, I should be able to offer volume one and volume two free uh, through Kindle. 
and then have the paperbacks and the, and the hardbacks out. All right. Thank you for listening. Um, hope you enjoy. I should be back tomorrow and hope you enjoy your, uh, the rest of your day. Thank you. Bye.